regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Datacast. And today, I have the pleasure to speak with Alba Chapra Lieta who is a, a postdoc researcher at the Alain Asperger-Gusick Group at the University of Toronto. She obtained her PhD in the University of Barcelona in 2019. Her, her background is in particle physics and quantum information theory. In the last couple of years, she has focused on quantum computation algorithms, in particular, in those suitable for noisy intermediate scale quantum computation. So Alba, welcome to the show. Thank you for your invitation, James. Awesome. Happy to be here. So uh, let's start our conversation talking a little bit about your upbringing. So you were born and raised in, in Barcelona, and I believe that you uh, discovered the world of physics at quite a young age. Can you share a bit about your background and what about physics that captures your interest? So since I was a child, I was always interested in science, especially because my father was also interested in science fiction and also the works of Isaac Asimov and all these authors. So since I was a kid, he shared that with me. So I was also inter- I was interested in science in general. Uh, but then I had a very, very good professor, a physics professor in my high school, which is the one who basically uh, motivated me to, do, uh, to choose physics among other uh, scientific degrees. So my background in particular in physics is quantum physics uh, in general and quantum information in particular. And from my physicist side, I'm interested in fundamental questions in quantum physics, such as the nature of light and particles, uh, what makes quantum physics different from classical physics, etc. But I also recently came to develop a practical side too, which is the interest about the technological advances that quantum mechanics can offer, such as quantum computing in, in this case. And working precisely in this case in quantum computation, which is a subfield of quantum information, it's truly exciting because it has these two sides of me. In one, on one half, we have many fundamental questions, and on the other half, we have many problems that we have to solve, experimental ones, and also find new applications, etc. So we have to squeeze the best of current quantum computers, and this is kind of fun. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing a bit about that background and some, some of the ideas that you pursued. I believe that you went to college at the University of Barcelona in the late 2000s to you know, study fundamental physics. So what were some of your favorite classes during your bachelor program? So when I started, I would say that uh, as any other physicist, we started because we like the cosmos ideas, astrophysics, and these kind of things. But to be honest, I wasn't sure what was physicist uh, besides that. So when I started my degree, I just discovered that physics was more than just cosmos and, and astrophysics and astronomy, etc. And I discovered new subjects. And in particular, I discovered the quantum information one. It turns out that I was the first generation in University of Barcelona to study quantum information. It was a new subject in the, in the degree. 
we were only seven people. Now I think that there are more than 50 students in each class and, and, and it's quite a famous subject in the degree. So I discovered this field and I really like it because at that point it was, everything was theoretical. I wasn't sure that quantum computers were something real, to be honest. And many things have changed in, since then and it has passed less than 10 years. So, so yeah, I mean, I believe that quantum information was, was one of, my, of the fields that I really liked in, uh, in my degree, but also particle physics, of course. And that was one of the reasons why I chose my master's then. I see. Yeah, I just continue with, with that thread. So you, you said you continued your education with your master. That one is specialized in particle physics and um, gravitation, I believe. So what were some of the differences between these subjects from like fundamental physics? Uh, in particular, in University of Barcelona, the, the physics degree is divided into fundamental physics and applied physics. And I choose fundamental one because I was more interested in the theoretical challenges. And similarly, the master was also divided into particle and gravitation and astrophysics. And I choose the first one for two reasons. One reason was purely sentimental and it's related when I was a kid. I used to pass through the, in front of the walls of uh, the physics faculty in Barcelona when I came back from my grandmother's house. And I saw a very big advertisement with all the masters that were offered at that time. And one of those was the, the astrophysics master. And I thought, wow, that sounds very cool. It's, it sounds very complicated, but also very interesting. And when I had finished my degree, of course, I was kind of my destiny to choose that master, which already existed. Uh, but the other one is because, uh, unfortunately, during the physics degree, which is four years in Spain, is, uh, we don't have time to cover all topics, of course. And in particular with particle physics, I needed to continue these topics and to know the end of the story, let's say. So that's why I chose this master and I chose the, uh, partic the particle physics uh, branch of it, because I really wanted to see what was the, you know, the end of the story on this field. I see, both from a sentimental part of view as well as some uh, intellectual uh, interest. And so you study fundamental physics and then you also study astrophysics. In 2015, you start your PhD in physics, right? Let's just move on and discuss a little bit about some of your research at this time. One of your earliest publications, this one is called Operational Approach to Bell Inequalities Application to Qtrits in summer 2016. So what are Bell Inequalities and what was the main aim of this publication? So let me start with what is the Bell Theorem which mm -hmm. uh, leads to Bell inequalities. The Bell theorem proves that quantum physics can be described with a local hidden variable theory. And this was a revolutionary result in the 60s by John Bell, because it proved that quantum entangled particle correlations can be described using classical physics arguments. And at that time, people suspected that there, there must be some intrinsic property in those particles, something that quantum mechanics is not telling fully. So that people believe that quantum mechanics theory was incomplete because of that. This thing that was hidden explained these weird correlations. So they call these unknown properties hidden variables. John Bell proposed an experiment to validate this hypothesis, uh, which is the Bell inequality experiment. This experiment says that by entangling two particles and separating them huge distances, uh, we measure the correlations between the, some physical observables of these two particles. And we can deduce some expression. And if there are hidden variables, which means that if we can explain quantum mechanics from a classical point of view, there is a maximum bound of this inequality, which it turns to be two in the original inequality. So uh, Bell proof showed that theoretically, if quantum mechanics exist, uh, this bound is violated and the maximum value is greater than two. 20 years later, it was proven experimentally by the uh, experiments by Aspect et al. 
And that means that classical physics can't explain quantum mechanic phenomena. And since then, many people have discovered new well inequalities that involve more parties, that involve different kind of uh, states and degrees of freedom, etc. And our work in well inequalities was precisely that, to propose new well inequalities, in particular those that involve Q-treats, which is a kind of quantum state. This is also like one of your first you know, research application. How was your experience, you know, going from basically taking classes to actually conducting research that peer review and publication conferences? So as uh, everybody that works in research or have done some research sometimes, so you didn't expect this, but I mean, everything is, uh, you spend a lot of time trapped in your office, trying, trying and trying different things. And in the end, the things that are, and that appears in the final paper are only a small quantity of the things that you have actually tried. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of work that is summarized in a few pages. And, and it's difficult sometimes to explain to someone that didn't have this experience to explain that most of the time you were frustrated and you didn't find an answer etc but that's part of the process and we need to find new results but we also need to test those that doesn't work so this is also very important so to me it was kind of a revelation of course but it was fun at the same time because uh, when you finally finish and you find a result and, and you are proud of it so you really enjoy it and even if it's just a very 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 small contribution to science it's something that you have made it's something original and it's something that will always be there Fantastic. During your PhD, you also spent some time as a visiting scholar at the University of Oxford and then later at the University of Madrid. How was your experience at this institution? First with Oxford, I had a super great opportunity going there and it was kind of a coincidence because one of, so my, my host there, which was the professor Juan Rojo, he came to university, he's from Barcelona, and he came to my university to give a talk, and we talked with him about particle physics, etc. And we shared with him um, the, one of my PhD projects, which was the study of entanglement in fundamental interactions. He was very interested on that too, so that's why he invited me to go to Oxford during a few months. It was amazing really oxford is a fairly little uh, city and the university uh, it's it's very 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 nice and people that work there are amazing too the final result of that position was uh, my second article with uh, in my phd the next year i had also the opportunity to go one month to autonomous university of madrid also in a particle physics group to continue developing the same work basically and to discuss these topics with people that were around and it was also very nice living in madrid in the city center is very nice and i had the opportunity to live just there so it was very cool i see yeah i'm sure that you know collaboration and with other institutions is a big part of a research experience and it seems like you know you have a very great time you know meeting with other academic professionals who are in the same uh, domain as you are and then just continuing on that thread you're talking about that second paper uh, as a result justine from Oxford. this work attempts to understand the connection between maximal entanglement and the fundamental symmetries of high energy physics can you explain maximal entanglement in layman terms and why are you interested in this topic for your research Entanglement is one of the main reasons why quantum mechanical laws are so different from the classical ones. And there are still many questions around the properties and implications of entanglement. And it's also closely related with what I said before of Bell inequalities. So why Bell inequalities are violated for quantum mechanics is because of entanglement is one of the reasons. And then it's reasonable to think that fundamental laws of physics are somehow engineered 
in a way that they allow this entanglement to exist and to be generated. Someone has to generate this entanglement at the fundamental level. So we study uh, what were the structure of fundamental theories, in particular quantum electrodynamics, which is, explains that uh, the physics behind the interaction between light and matter, in particular electrons. And we study under which circumstances maximal entangled states can be generated by these kind of interactions. And we recovered the known result, which is quantum electrodynamics precisely, but this result comes from uh, symmetry uh, arguments. So we obtain the same, uh, uh, the same result by imposing entanglement. So it's clearly at the core of these theories too. So nature is such that maximal entangled states exist and can be generated. And later on, we also extended the result to another fundamental theories, the weak interaction one in particular. We obtained some arguments of why some of the experimental free parameters of the standard model are the ones that we measure in the experiment. And the reason behind it seems to come from maximal entanglement too. So it was very cool to study this fundamental interaction from this different point of view, which is the quantum information point of view, and see how entanglement is also at the core of these interactions. I see. Thanks for like explaining the entanglement in, in a concrete term like that. The following work from that one, this one is called multi-party entanglement in spin trains and the hyper-determinant. So can you explain the concepts of spin trains as well as hyper-determinant? And then I suppose like how are multi-party entanglement related to them? So spin change are the physical models uh, sometimes used to explain and study the magnetism at its fundamental level. Highly sophisticated spin chains can explain properties like superconductivity, for instance. So they are really important in condensed matter physics and new materials, etc. And some models show also what we call quantum phase transitions, which are transitions that occur at zero temperature and uh, due to quantum fluctuations instead of temperature, which is the, the typical phase transitions that we are used to, like the water turning into ice, etc. And it has been proved that at the critical point, precisely, the entanglement is huge and the scales uh, logarithmically with the size of the spin chain. So we decided to study this entanglement using uh, the hyperdeterminant, which is a figure of merit to quantify it. So there are many ways to quantify entanglement, especially when it's entanglement between more than two parties. And it's actually an, an open question in quantum information how to quantify this entanglement properly. And hyperdeterminant is one of these measures, in particular to measure the entanglement between four spins or four parties. So we study that in quantum-based transitions and we see what the, if it scales, if it increases, if not, etc. I'm just curious, like, you know, for both of this work on entanglement, you said you try to take a look at that theory from different angles, right? What are some of those, I guess, big other academic group that provides those theories for those different angles? You mean for uh, fundamental interactions or for spin chains? For fundamental interactions. So the fundamental interactions are normally uh, have been normally studied from the point of view of the experimental data that we obtain. So we reconstruct the how then the particles were created, etc. And but more recently, people are starting to mix quantum information with basically all the fields in science, including particle physics too. So we study the wave function itself, which is something that we can't observe because we, we can only observe in quantum mechanics what we call the amplitudes, which are the observables in physics. So we measure something and we obtain a value. This is the things that are accessible in the experiment. And from a quantum information point of view, we can also study the what is called the wave function, which is not observable, but is some theoretical mathematical description that we can use to predict 
what we will observe in the experiments. So in our case, we wanted to study these things in particular. So it's something that is not uh, something that you will observe in the experiment, but you can deduce properties from that that can be observed in the experiment. We are not the only ones that do these things, but uh, this is something that uh, is appearing in the field of particle physics and also in other fields. So for instance, the spin chains have been studied since the 20s or so. The easing model is, for instance, is from the 20s. And it, ha it has also been always studied from the classical point of view first, and then the quantum point of view appear. And of course, quantum information at some point also arrived there and people started to study properties like entanglement in these spin chains. So the conclusion of all of this is that quantum information is not a new field, but very recently is, uh, has been applied to many fields in physics to study other points of view in the end. Out of curiosity, you know, in, in science and in research in general, you, you have both the theory and the experimental part. How much time do you spend on coming up with mathematical definition in the theory and how much time do you actually conduct, you know, empirical uh, experiment to, to validate, you know, some of those theories? Yeah. Well, it depends on the experiment that we work on, because, of course, experimentally is very challenging. Uh, having a uh, quantum experiment implies that you first you need a quantum particle, which is a, a very, very small thing in general, and you need to isolate it from the environment. And that's really hard because the environment includes the temperature, for instance, or other particles, the air, etc. So you need to isolate it very well to start studying its properties. That's the most challenging thing. And also finding in nature quantum mechanical systems that can be used to test your ideas. So for instance, for the Bell experiment, you need something, you need some quantum mechanical uh, system that can be used to measure different properties. And one widely used are photons precisely because you can measure two properties, which are the polarization right of left, for instance, and you can use that to test the Bell experiment. So in the end, theoretically, you can propose many things, but experimentally, you need to find the physical, the physical system that can represent these properties that are in your theory. So in my case, I'm not an experimentalist, but very recently, especially with quantum computation, I came, uh, I started to, to study in more detail what are the limitations of the experiments. So I can came with new ideas or new ways of applying uh, theoretical algorithms in a way that can be also applied in the experiment. I see. Originally, you were focused a bit more on the theory side and with access to like hardware and, and more physical uh, device. Exactly. Yeah perform experiment, you, you actually be able to, to validate some of those theoretical right? Exactly. Perfect. Yeah, th thanks for sharing those insights. We already discussed a little bit about your foray into quantum computing, but to make it like concrete, understanding that you start to learn how to use a quantum computer around, you know, this time while continuing to work on entanglement in particle physics. In particular, in summer 2017, your group at the University of Barcelona joined first with the Barcelona Supercomputing Center and started a new group on quantum computation called Quantic. So could you mind going over the origin of this project? Yeah, at that time and also before, quantum computers started the, its expansion, let's say, in many, many universities and research centers, especially, in my opinion, due to the fact that the experiments came out and many companies started to invest in building these devices. So more research centers also started to gain interest in this field. So at that time, my former supervisor in University of Barcelona, Jose Ignacio La Torre, he has been working on quantum information for many years, including quantum computation. And we were very close to Barcelona Supercomputing Center, which also have some researchers with some experience in quantum information. It was kind of something logic to, to start this kind of group 
because also the Barcelona Supercomputing Center has a, a supercomputer, the Mare Nostrum, which can be used to test and benchmark the quantum algorithms. We can simulate the quantum algorithms in a supercomputer and check uh, the, the limitation, the problem that can arise, etc. proof of concepts things. It's kind of, uh, of logic to have this kind of group in a center which also have a, a supercomputer there because that will be very useful. So that was the origin of, of our group. So. Um, and many other research groups in the world has done similar things, joining forces between university and research center, like supercomputing centers. I see. So yeah, that combination between um, academic talent and industry support, I suppose, brought a lot of like, fruitful results. Not only industry, but also these centers have also studied the limitations of classical computation too. So it's kind of uh, logic if you study uh, which kind of architect cheap architectures can be useful for solving one of other uh, problems. Why not also check in another different paradigm in computation, which is quantum computation. It's kind of uh, something natural that arises in these research centers because people there are also physicists, some of them. Others are computer scientists that uh, are, have also interest in in complexity theories, etc., and quantum computation is a new paradigm, so it's also attractive for some of these researchers. And we also need, from the quantum computing point of view, we also need to know what are the limitations of classical computation in the first place. So if I propose an, a quantum algorithm and then an, another person just propose a classical algorithm that do the same, then my algorithm is not useful anymore or may or could not be as useful as I thought. So in the end, uh, it's also natural to work together in, in this field too, or, or at least to be aware of the progress of, in the other fields in computation. And so this time you basically split time between both the university and the supercomputer center, right? I was basically researching from both at the same time, let's say. So I had the, both affiliations. Mm-hmm. So at some point I just, let's say, finished some of the projects that I have in University of Barcelona. And I started the quantum computing ones also in the University of Barcelona because my PhD must be conducted in uh, university. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, so I started to share my algorithms and my ideas with researchers in Barcelona Supercomputing Center. And we came out with some of the papers precisely at that time. So it was basically a, a double affiliation in, in the university and the, and the research center. You wrote this fascinating blog post two years ago called Quantum Computation Playing the Quantum Symphony. The post makes a metaphor between quantum computing and musical symphony, discussing the quantum tone, the quantum course, and the quantum instrument. Can you unpack this post for the audience? Yeah, of course. I collaborated with the Quantum World Association, and that's the reason why I wrote this post, because uh, we were asked to write some posts to share and explain in plain words uh, to people that are not familiar with uh, quantum physics, what is quantum computation and what are quantum technologies in general, not only computation. So I found this analogy of quantum symphony in uh, one of the Seth Lloyd's texts. And I thought it was a good uh, way to explain the basics, especially because it's an analogy that uh, it's a really good one because it can it maps the physics with the music and music is also generated thanks to physics. I can be explaining that in that terms. So in the end, from my point of view, in this analogy, quantum states are, this is physics, quantum states are described by the wave functions, what we call wave functions. And instead of being a wave function, uh, sorry, a wave of matter or a wave of pressure as, as, for instance, sound, it's a wave of probability, which means that it tells you the probability of observing some state in a particular place. The analogy is the following. So each quantum state can be understood as a tone, let's say, of some particular uh, note. 
And a combination of them, a chord, could also be generated. So for instance, we can have a sound wave that carries the information of only one tone, or we can have a, a sound wave that carries more than one tone. So similarly, in quantum computing, we can have a quantum state that carries only one tone, which could be the zero state, or we can have a quantum state that carries more than one tone. So that is the superposition of different states, the zero and the one, for instance, for one qubit. So in the end, we can think about each quantum state, each qubit as a single tone, and a symphony is uh, what the quantum computer does, which is playing with different quantum states, generating different tones, different charts, and in the end, the final music is the result of our computation. So in the end, it's combining different wave functions with different waves, different sounds, to generate something at the end, which is our symphony. And I also use this analogy to show that there are different quantum instruments. So we have the quantum instruments that are uh, represented by researchers like me that are purely theoreticians that uh, maybe we wrote the musical sheets, etc. But then someone has to play that melody, which are all the companies and research centers that are building this device. And not only them, but also you need people that build the different parts of these devices. So we have a huge group of enabling technologies that are emerging uh, thanks to quantum computing and also other quantum technologies. Uh, for instance, all the refrigerators that are used to uh, call down the qubits to run the quantum algorithms. There are some companies that work only on that. Other companies that are um, constructing and designing all the electronic uh, equipment to control the qubits and to control the quantum computer. Software companies that are designing the quantum software to program these quantum algorithms, etc. These are the different quantum instruments that all together we play this quantum symphony. Fabulous. I think one, one part that I really like about the post is that, you know, you have this nice diagram, basically showcased like, you know, all the softwares, company that is building these technologies, the quantum computers and enabling technologies. And I think you, you make this matter for asking like, who would develop the quantum strategy various, right? Can, can you explain that point? Uh, and then I guess like make some of your prediction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was really hard to, to do that diagram because the field is so active that while, while I was researching about the different companies, and by the way, this diagram is are only the, the private sector, but then you need to sum on top of them all the research and university centers which are doing similar things. So uh, it's a really huge amount of quantum players and there are new ones appearing all the time as we speak. So it's quite difficult to track the, all of them because now there are many, many, many. And in the terms of this analogy of quantum Stradivarius, one of the main challenges in quantum computing is which technology should we use to build this device? Because we need to think about some quantum state, as I said before, we need to think about quantum states that represents our algorithms and our ideas. And this experimental is really hard. And you need to think about, okay, what technology can I use? And you can use photon, you can use uh, superconducting circuits, you can use ions, you can use quantum dots, you can do use many, many things. And it's not clear today which one is the best one because all of them have pros and cons. Maybe the, the, the final one will be a mixture of all of them. It's not clear for anyone. So in the end, everybody's trying different technologies and everybody's trying to different strategies to build these devices. And it's not clear which one will be the best one, to be honest. And there are some proofs. Very recently, we have some quantum advantage experiments. The first proofs that we can run something that cannot be simulated in a classical computer, but it still is something that has no a clear application yet. So it's not clear. There is still room for many people to develop new technology in that direction. And that's why I asked, what is the quantum Stradivarius? It's not clear, not even the material to build this Stradivarius. 
And we're probably going to touch on those, those points later on in the conversation when we discuss some of your recent talks. But first, let's come back to your research. One of your earliest quantum research is a paper called Exact Ising Models Simulation on a Quantum Computer. What was the motivation and core contribution of this work? So as I said, the current quantum computers, are the ones to, uh, available two years ago, are small prototypes, So, which means that they only have a few qubits. At that time, they have five, six qubits, up to 16 in some cases, but very small devices. And all of these qubits, and even currently, are what we call noisy, which means that they are not perfect. It's that we apply a quantum operation on them. This operation is not perfect. And that has some limitation in terms of which algorithms can we run on them. So at, what, at that time, I started to just think about which kind of algorithms can we run in these uh, small prototypes as a proof of concept algorithms. I just discovered this, I mean, not discovered, but some people told me about the, uh, an early work from 2009, which proposes an algorithm to simulate the Ising model with a quantum computer. But that was a very early work. So people that developed this work, they knew that at that time they couldn't run it in a real quantum computer because it wasn't existing at the time. I take their algorithm and I translate it into the basic gates available in, in current quantum computers. And on top of that, I proposed how to simulate the time evolution of this uh, simulation. And that was a, a proposal of how one of the earliest proposals in the end, in general, in quantum computing, which is sorry, not proposal of mine, but the proposal of application in quantum computation, which is uh, simulating quantum physics. That was the original uh, idea from Feynman in the 80s. So why we need a quantum computer to simulate quantum physics? There are many more applications, but that was one of the original ones. So in the end, I was thinking at the time, okay, let's try to do the original idea. So to run the, a simulation in a quantum computer to program that simulation. And this Ising model can be solved analytically, which means that we don't need a quantum computer for that. We can just solve the theory by hand. Mm -hmm. But because of that, we can compare the results of a quantum computer with the ones that are theoretical. So we can test what is the performance of this quantum computer. Mm -hmm. And that was the, one of the ideas of this work, one of my motivations to do that. And I believe that the main contribution is that I tested it with different quantum devices from different groups. From my point of view, it was useful to see what was the state of the art of the technology at that time when running a real, let's say, or a more sophisticated algorithm, which was this one proposed in the early years. To me, it was a great experience just to see how to run an algorithm in a real quantum computer. And it was also a great opportunity to do that. I never thought that I have, I will have an opportunity to run a, an experiment by myself because in the end I'm a theoretician. So I always simulate everything. I never run things on experiment, but now with quantum computers in the cloud, I can do that. So it was a very nice experience. And I believe that the results at least were useful for the community to see what was the state of the art. But I'm sure that if I run the algorithm again, the results will be super different. Of course, the machines have improved a lot. We have now bigger prototypes of quantum computers, so we can run more sophisticated algorithms than these ones. So, so yeah, it's incredible in two years how much has this field evolved. What were some of those devices that you run for this experiment? Like you said you run in different quantum devices. Like, and what, what are those? Yeah. Yeah, I run the, in two IBM devices, which were accessible in the cloud, and also in one Rigetti device, which Rigetti Computing is another startup that also develops uh, these uh, quantum devices. So at that time, these two companies offered by for free to run these experiments in the cloud. So to me and to other researchers, it's something very 
curious at least to experience because as I said, I never thought that I would run an experiment by my own. Just just from your experience, like was there a trade-off between uh, speed and uh, performance? Speed in which terms? I, I guess like the time it took to, to run it on the cloud. I cannot say that because I just send the code and they send me back the results. So I don't know how okay. much time it took to run the real algorithm, but I suspect that seconds as much, I mean, a few or milliseconds maybe. The quantum computation is really fast, especially with superconducting qubits, which is the technology used in these two devices. But as I said, the motivation was not the quantum advantage one because uh, this model can be solved analytically. So I can solve it by hand instead of a quantum computer or a classical one was more the fact that you are actually programming something that is simulating a real system and is a quantum. So you can this open the possibility to simulate things that cannot be solved analytically with a, or with a classical computer because they are too hard to do or, or because you don't know how to do that, but you know how to program an, a computer which do that for you. So that was the main motivation. Like a proof of concept. To, exactly. It was uh, a proof of concept, yeah. Plus the motivation. And, and then, yeah, I mean, like just related to that work, you um, also created a tutorial that ended up winning the Teach Me Kiskit Challenge from IBM back in 2018. Yeah, would you mind sharing about that experience? So it was a great experience, of course. And it was a, a big coincidence in the end, everything, because I was working on that before I knew that there was this challenge or this award contest. And I was working precisely in running my algorithm in IBM computers. So when this challenge uh, came out, I said, okay, I will write it down in a tutorial form and present it to them, of course. I wasn't expecting to win, to be honest, because I thought many people is probably sending very nice proposals. And indeed, if you check the other proposals that almost win, I mean, there is a, it's a list of, of 10 proposals. All of them are truly amazing and, and sophisticated. And I believe that uh, mine won because I was showing a performance of a quantum simulation algorithm, which was one of the main reasons why are we building this computer. And I can also, so my experiment was small enough to show some results, but also um, sophisticated enough to not be in a trivial uh, example of, of the technology. So, but anyway, the other proposals were also amazing. And because it was the first quantum challenge, and it was that there were other awards, but my award was the first one to, to, to be announced. So I, there was a lot of both IBM and also the, my, the Barcelona Supercomputing Center started to share the news, etc. And because of that, I ended up giving many interviews in the Spanish newspapers, mm-hmm. probably because many people just discovered that quantum computers exist. <laughs> it was not so famous at that time. Now more people are aware of this, but not uh, two years ago. And to me, it was great because I gained a lot of visibility, both in academia, but of course, for the general public that are interested in technology. It was a great experience. And I'm, I'm very happy to, for IBM to giving me this award and, and, and everybody that helped me all the time. Fabulous. Continuing on your research on quantum computing during sort of the final years of your PhD, this work is called Quantum Circuits for Maximally Entangled State. So in this one, you and your co-authors design a series of quantum circuits that generate absolute maximally entangled state to benchmark a quantum computer. Um, Yeah, can you elaborate on that? Yes, as I said before, entanglement is at the core of quantum physics and is also at the core of quantum algorithms speed up. 
So if quantum state generated by, by these algorithms is low, we know many clever classical techniques to simulate that computation. So in the end, if we need a quantum computer, it's because there are many systems, there are many algorithms that carry a lot of entanglement, so we can't simulate that in a classical computer. If you, the algorithm that you propose has low entanglement, you don't need a quantum computer for that. So because of that, we decided to design a test for quantum computers, which consists on generating the most possible entangled states of few qubits, just to test if the performance of these computers is good enough to run more sophisticated algorithms. And that's, uh, our test was very simple because all the circuits are very small and involve very simple, apparently simple quantum gates. But at the same time, if you want to generate the amount of entanglement, since it's too high, uh, you need to control these gates very, very well. So we believe that that could be a good benchmark for a quantum computer, for a small prototypes or for a small parts of the computer to just try to run these uh, highly entangled states, just to check that your computer is purely quantum and is able to manage the amount of entanglement needed in some quantum algorithms. I see. And had there been any other work that used this benchmark that you created? Not this one in particular, because as I said, to manage this amount of entanglement, you need to perform almost perfect gates, mm -hmm. because otherwise it's very easy to lose this particular entanglement. So at the moment, as I'm aware, I'm, I'm not aware of anybody that has tried to do that beside ourselves, that we run this in some, some of the IBM and Reality computers. And the result was, fortunately, was not good in the sense that they can generate entanglement, of course, but not these particular states were too much for that devices at the time, but that was almost two years ago. So many things have changed, of course. I'm not super familiar with entanglement, but is low entanglement better? I guess that was, was the relationship between entanglement and the efficiency of the algorithms. Yeah. So one of the main difference between classical and quantum is the existence of entanglement. Entanglement doesn't exist in classical physics. Right. So it's a quantum, it's how we call the quantum correlations in the end. So entanglement is quantum correlations. So uh, if you don't have highly quantum correlations, you can simulate everything with a classical computer. Mm. If you have highly quantum correlation, that means that there are some properties that you can exploit. And these are the ones used in algorithms so, such as the Grover search algorithm or the short factorization algorithm, which are quantum algorithms that we know that they have exponential speed up in comparison with the classical algorithms. So in the end, for two reasons. The first one is that you know that you need entanglement to run these algorithms. And the second one is if you obtain some quantum algorithm that doesn't have high entanglement, that means that you can simulate that with a classical computer in the first case, in the first place, so you don't need a quantum computer at all. So mm. in the end, the motivation behind building a quantum computer is to manage this entanglement, which appears not only in quantum algorithms, but also in the simulation of quantum phenomena like the spin change, for instance. The quantum phase transition also have a lot of entanglement there. So if you want to observe that, if you want to study that, you need to be able to generate this amount of entanglement at some point. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for providing a clear clarification between uh, classical and quantum algorithms and, and the relationship and how it's important to manage the entanglement in, in action. Your final work was still affiliated with the University of Barcelona. It's called Data Reuploading for a Universal Quantum Classifier. What is a Universal Quantum Classifier? And uh, yeah, how can data reuploading help tackle existing challenges associated with it? So let me start with the analogy with classical neural networks and quantum neural networks, because in the end, this quantum classifier is a kind of quantum neural network. 
The neural networks are widely used in machine learning because they work, of course, and because we know that they are universal function approximators. And there is a famous theorem, which is the universal approximation theorem, uh, that proved that this statement uh, for one hidden layer of neural networks. And I think that there are some generalizations to deep learn and deep neural networks, etc. So what we wanted to explore is it's that the equivalence of the theorem in quantum neural networks. So in particular in what we call variational quantum neural networks. So we propose the smallest possible quantum model capable of being a universal approximation function. And it turns out that you only need one qubit which is the minimal uh, unit of information of quantum information. If you upload the data uh, multiple times along the circuit. So you can think about it as each neuron in your, in your quantum classifier is a quantum gate where uh, encodes the data and also some parameters that should be trained and optimized. So in the end, the idea of our paper was just to explore what were the minimal needs to perform a, a quantum classification task. And the minimal needs is just one qubit, but one qubit can be simulated efficiently with a classical computer, it's super small. Our goal was not to prove quantum advantage, of course, because one qubit can be simulated with my laptop very easily. It was just to prove that even with one qubit, you can achieve the same thing that you can achieve with classical neural networks. So the next question is, what happens if you have more than one qubit and you introduce entanglement between them? So you may expect that the result may be better than the classical one. But we, we didn't uh, benchmark that yet, but we just performed some proof of concept experiment, as I said, as I did in my other works in the end. All of them are proof of concept because the experiments are not good enough yet to run the big things, let's say. We obtain similar results, sometimes even better than standard classical neural networks. So in the end, our goal was not to compare and benchmark the quantum versus classical neural networks, because classical neural networks are much more advanced than the quantum ones at the moment, but just prove that with a quantum computer, we can do something similar at least. We are not even introducing entanglement and more qubits. But I suspect that the results will be even better when we introduce that. But we don't know that yet. So that's, that will be the second step of this kind of, of work, precisely. So there are many challenges to face, how to optimize these variables, how to introduce the entanglement, etc. So, so all these questions must to be answered before that, before any claim. But it was just the first step, let's say. That's extremely fascinating. I think, what is the classification task in this scenario? In this scenario, we only take very simple classification tasks, so two-dimensional, three- and four-dimensional. So in one dimension, we first check just a cycle, mm -hmm. if the points are inside or outside of that, that cycle. Mm -hmm. And then we, we check, okay, maybe a cycle, of course, is super uh, simple like image. Let's check uh, different cycles. So we take a uh, square with different cycles of different sizes, and some of them are partially inside of the square. And there were four classes in that case. And with one qubit, you can approximate or, or you can guess where are the points of each class there and with high accuracy, like more than 95% or so. And then we try the same with a hypersphere of a sphere of in three dimensions and also in four dimensions, just to check that we can also upload and, and process data in more than one dimension with one qubit. But again, I mean, of course, this can be done officially with a classical neural network very easily, very fast. But our aim was just to see what were the minimal needs. So what's the minimal thing that you need to do this task with a quantum computer? Perfect. And these are the minimal needs. Then, of course, 
next step will, okay, what are the things that we can add on top of that to do these things better than a classical neural network? Maybe because the entanglement plays some role or because we can upload more information in the same system. So qubits can manage exponential amount of information. But then there are also other problems with that because when you measure the qubits, the information that you can extract for them is not exponentially big. So it's a kind of balance between how much information can your quantum system process and how much information can you actually access and how do you put everything together to, for instance, perform a classification task. So there are many questions to be answered. And I guess like also I'm curious about another thing is that I suppose you don't you know, formally like study neural networks before you, you like tackle this research, right? Like that intersection between quantum computing and, and machine learning. How do you level up some of those, this basic knowledge about like like you said, you know, basic neural networks and, you know, things like universal approximation theorem. And I'm just curious about that process. And you, you learn like those different disciplines that is not within your, your expertise. Yeah. So, of course, asking people that are familiar with these fields. And for instance, my former supervisor, he was working in neural networks in the 90s, where, where they're not so famous as right now. So he knew about the origins of this field. So in the end, quantum computing is now in, the, in a very, very early stage. So we are not even benchmarking our models of anything with current state-of-the-art machine learning. This classical machine learning is very far away from us, of course. So we are starting from the beginning, from where machine learning has started, which is, okay, I have a neuron. How can I define this neuron? How can I put together these neurons? How can I train these neurons? And I'm not even thinking about convolutional neural networks or more sophisticated. Uh, I mean, some people is thinking about that too, but we are at that point because we cannot process all this amount of data yet with a quantum computer. So in the end, we are just uh, researching back in time and seeing what were the first works in neural networks. What, in my case, I was looking for what were the mathematical theorems behind neural networks. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to uh, find the quantum counterpart of them. So, okay, they prove this thing using these uh, functions. What are the equivalents of this function in my, in my quantum computer, etc.? Because in the end, we wanted to prove that it has sense to research in this direction. If we couldn't find the mathematical proofs, the equivalence of the mathematical proof, not even for one layer of, of hidden neurons, it probably has no sense to continue in this direction because we need to prove that that has sense, that we can invest all this time in something that will eventually approximate a universal function better than a classical neural network. So that's why in my case, I was researching, okay, why neural networks work in the first place? Mm -hmm. And I arrived to this theorem, and, and of course, I asked people that were working on that uh, many years ago, so they were familiar with those papers. Yeah, that, that really shows the importance of asking for help for, for domain expertise and, and people with, with some experience in those main. And I think like deep learning, you know, since the past decade or so, there's, there's a lot of been work from the theoretical side, you know, on different types of optimizers, or how do you, you know, make, making sure that, you know, get good generalization towards your final task. And sounds like from your part of view, there could be a lot of interesting exploration uh, on how to optimize quantum machine learning, similar to the way that ML research has done in the past decade or so. Yeah. I'm personally excited for those initiatives. Precisely because of that is one of the reasons where centers like Barcelona Supercomputing Center also works with in quantum computing or also other centers that come together, different people from different fields, because we need to know about these results first. So I need the help, for instance, particularly, I need the help of people that work in classical machine learning. Mm -hmm. So I can know what are the problems in the field, what are the challenges, what were the original papers that developed the field, so I can try to translate them into quantum. 
and all together we can maybe find some uh, some application of everything and improve the current results, etc. So that's why uh, quantum computing is a very multidisciplinary field. So it, it comprises physicists, of course, but also computer scientists and machine learning scientists, uh, engineers, etc. So that's that's very important in this field and it's fundamental because otherwise I will not be never I will never be aware about what are the current state of the art in classical machine learning. I mean it's too big the field to to be aware in only, you know, in one month, let's say I can accelerate things by collaborating with people that are familiar with the field. Since September 2019, you have been a postdoctoral fellow at the MATLAB in the University of Toronto, working on quantum machine learning and um, variational quantum algorithms. How has your postdoc experience thus far, and how could you describe the quantum research community in Toronto? So first of all, I'm extremely happy to be part of the MatterLab group. And we are a big group, and it's very exciting because we work in quantum computing, but we also work in material discovery and in artificial intelligence techniques applied to chemistry and physics. So we are a multidisciplinary group, and I've learned a lot from my colleagues precisely in these other fields. And unfortunately, because COVID, I only spend this time with my group like six months before the pandemic. So the rest of the time, everything has been virtual, as in any other place, of course. But on the other side, I'm very happy to have taken this decision because the group has been extremely supportive. So I just discovered that I took a very good decision coming here. Especially our PI, Alanas Purugusit, he has been very supportive with all of us with all this pandemic. So I'm happy to be part of a group that, besides doing science, also cares about people and how are we, etc. The advantage of our group is that uh, we're already well organized before the pandemic uh, virtually because we are a lot of people. So the translation to Zoom was not so dramatic. At the same time, hopefully, uh, the situation improves and I can left the group. Before I left the group, I can have the opportunity to meet the people again and, and do research with them in the same office, at least, and these kind of things. And uh, on the other side, the other part of the question, one of the reasons that to come to Toronto was, of course, the well-known work of the PI of Alanas Purguzic in quantum computing, but also the growing ecosystem in Toronto, quantum ecosystem in particular. Uh, we have an amazing startup incubator, which is the Creative Destruction Lab, and many uh, quantum technology startups has passed through the quantum program of this incubator. And then we also have companies like Shanadu or Zapata Computing, which are actively working in quantum computation. And they have offices in Toronto. They are based in Toronto too. So sometimes in our group meetings, we also invite people from these companies or people from Vector Institute, other groups in University of Toronto. So many collaborations have arise from, from these uh, kind of meetings. And it's very interesting to see different sides of quantum computing. I noticed that you also recently organized the uh, Quantum Research Seminar Toronto, right? Just like a series of virtual talks about yeah, exactly. topics. You know, how was the uh, participation rate been so far? And, you know, what, what did you learn about like these other players in, in the community? The origin of Quantum Research Seminar Toronto was precisely uh, these group meetings. So I remember it was just before the pandemic, like maybe two, three weeks before everything started. We have a very, very big group meeting because uh, there were people from different companies presenting some work in our meeting. And it was like the, the idea was, okay, we should do this thing more often. So we decided to start this, uh, this series of seminars. In At the beginning, the idea was to only with people from Toronto involved, in person, of course. But then the, the pandemic appears, so we have to move to a virtual site. And because everything was virtual, we, we decided to take the, that opportunity to invite people from other groups too. 
-hmm. And so far it, it has been very nice because the idea of this seminar was to invite people from our field, but at the same time working on different things, not, uh, not directly the same field as us in Toronto. So we can learn about other applications of quantum computing, or we can learn about uh, the experiment itself because we are a theoretical group, yeah, or other applications in quantum computing, and also inviting people both from academia and also from, uh, from the private sector because normally their goals are different and it's also very interesting to see how they tackle the problems. So far it has been great and we have a growing community around Toronto and, and in these seminars we, we kind of invite everybody to come and also speak with the speakers after the, the seminars, uh, which are in general very short, so we have time to listen to people and also discuss uh, further with, with the speakers. I see. I guess like will you continue to organize this event in 2021? Yeah, not in December. We are currently organizing the, the January session. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes so anyone who's interested can take a look and participate in these great seminar talks that Abba has just mentioned. Let's talk about some of your research that you have worked so far as a postdoc at Toronto. Earlier this year, you and like your authors have created this meta-variational quantum agent solver algorithms that is capable of learning the ground state energy profile of a parametrized Hamiltonian. This work attempts to shorten the distance between the current state of the art and application with quantum advantage. Would you mind explaining these algorithms to the uninitiated? First, this metavariational quantum eigen server, it's a part of a big family of algorithms in, in quantum computing, which is uh, known as variational quantum algorithms. And this means this kind of algorithms mix quantum computation with classical computation. So what they do is that we prepare some quantum state in a quantum computer, we measure some property of this state, and then the quantum circuit itself depends on a series of parameters that must be optimized classically with a classical subroutine, with a minimization method. So in the end, depending on the value of the measure of this quantum circuit of this property, we put this value inside of a classical optimizer, and this optimizer uh, propose a new series of uh, parameters for your quantum circuit. And you close the loop and you repeat the loop many times until convergence. And finally, when you converge, you obtain your final result, which could be the ground state energy of some Hamiltonian. An example of Hamiltonian is a molecule, for instance. So in physics, we modelize the states with, uh, sorry, the systems with Hamiltonians some, sometimes, as, uh, including chemistry, quantum chemistry Hamiltonians, which encode the properties of a molecule. And uh, uh, one of the properties of molecules that we are interested in is the minimal energy of the ground state as a function of some parameter of that molecule. For instance, the interatomic distance between the atoms of the molecule. So uh, the variational quantum eigensolver was one of the first proposed algorithms of this type of variational quantum algorithms. And that was the goal was to compute the ground state of a molecule and check what as a function of this Hamiltonian parameter, where was the minimum energy located. So in our case, our metavariational quantum eigensolver is an extension of this algorithm which uh, what tries to do is to learn the full Hamiltonian itself. So you can, instead of running the algorithm for each parameter of your Hamiltonian and you run an, a kind of a scan until you find the minimum energy, you run the algorithm for particular training points. You uh, learn the encoding of this Hamiltonian into your quantum system. 
And after that, you run the algorithm again for test points to obtain the, the energy profile of your Hamiltonian. So the, the goal is to save some computational time and not having to run the algorithm multiple times, but only with a few training points. And with those are enough to learn the whole spectrum, the whole ground state spectrum as a function of the interatomic distance, for instance. So that, that's the goal of, of this meta-variational quantum eigensolver. And it can be understood as a machine learning application in quantum simulation, because we are trying to learn the encoding of this parameter into our quantum circuits, which is in the end, the, the goal in quantum machine learning with classification, for instance, learning some function. I guess the word meta in, in the name of the algorithms, meaning that you try to learning how to learn, right? Exactly. Extra. The exaction is inspired in the strategy of learning how to learn. Right. And many people in, in quantum machine learning has, is working on that precisely. So this is not original in this sense. So what we do is just put together these different pieces uh, for this particular application, which is the parameter uh, learning of a Hamiltonian. I see. I suppose like, what is the most complicated part of this architecture? Is it the parameters? Is it like the loss function or is it... Uh, like the objective, like the, the size to identify, um, you know, because when you try to put together different things, you know, it, to make things clicks, you know, suddenly there are things that you need to customize, right? Yeah, there are many uh, questions and, and challenges in this, in not only in this algorithm, but in general in all variational quantum algorithms. The first one is that you need to propose a circuit answer. So you need to decide your quantum circuit. What are the gates that are composed that compose this quantum circuit? How do you entangle the, the different qubits? So all these are variables of your algorithm. And as uh, there are some techniques to, to extract a particular ansatz if you have a physically inspired Hamiltonian, for instance, a molecule. But in general, for other kinds of problems, it's not clear. So people use heuristics to try different possible answers and see if they converge better or not. So this is a big question in variational quantum algorithms. The other one is the optimization part precisely, because you have a quantum circuit that depends on many parameters that you need to optimize classically. So of course, the optimization part suffers from the, as any other optimization from local minima, et cetera. And there is on top of that, there is a problem in quantum computing in particular, which is the, what is called the barren plateau problem, which is the vanishing gradients. So it, if you initialize your quantum circuit with random parameters, it has been proved that the gradient of the objective of the circuit, of the thing that you measure with respect of these parameters is zero. Mm -hmm. And the variance tends to zero exponentially with the number of qubits. So as much, as bigger is your circuit, as much parameters you have, unless you have a good guess of the initialization of these parameters, uh, you will end up in a local minima for sure. So there are some strategies that try to address this barren plateau problem, uh, for instance, correlating the parameters of your circuit. And it's actually the case that we use in meta-variational quantum eigensolver because there is a parameter that is shares different gates of the circuit, which is the Hamiltonian parameter, which is fixed. And there are also other techniques that use in particular cost functions that are local instead of global. And there are many people that are working precisely on this problem, but this is actually a kind of very recent problem in, in variational algorithms. And many people is working on that at the, at, as we speak. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah, when you, when you say vanishing gradients and that kind of brought to mind, you know, the same problem in neural networks, specifically um, recurrent neural networks, right? When they uh, try to learn from, from previous history and basically, they forgot the, the gradients uh, obtained from, from previous state. So that's why they have to use a cell learning loop to utilize the gradients for future state. 
Thing like parameter initialization methods are still being developed actively in, in the machine learning community, and definitely it'd be exciting to see how that transfer towards the quantum ML uh, domain. Yeah, yeah, we will probably uh, use techniques developed in machine learning to solve this problem for sure, because this is a common problem. And as I said, it's originated partially because it's a mix between quantum and a classical optimizer. So any problem that arises in a classical optimizer will also appear in this uh, quantum algorithm. So yeah, we will. Uh, that's why, as I said before, it's important to work together in, in these fields. Any advantage in one field will probably have consequences in the other. You're also part of the group that created Tequila, which is a development package for quantum algorithms in Python. The platform is designed for fast and flexible implementation, prototyping, and deployment of novel quantum algorithms in electronic structure and other fields. Why is there a need for such a platform and uh, how is the Tequila API design? Nowadays, there are many quantum languages, but many, I mean many, many of them, because each company and its research group that is building a quantum computer is also building a quantum software to control the quantum computer. So something important to stress out is that a quantum computer is actually a quantum hardware and a classical software. So you still need classical computers, of course, to control the quantum hardware part. So uh, you need a quantum language for that. And, and as I said, all research and companies that are developing these devices have their own quantum language. On top of that, many people use quantum simulators, which are classical computers that are engineered in a way to simulate quantum physics uh, very efficiently. So to run these simulators, you also need a quantum uh, language, a quantum library that implements the quantum gates and, and algorithms, etc. So there are many, many quantum simulators. And, and because of all this proliferation of languages, simulators, hardware, etc., a standard scientist working in quantum computing, you need to translate your code to different platforms, exactly the same code, if you want to compare the performance, for instance. You spend a lot of time only with that. Uh, that's why we decided to create a project like Tequila. Tequila is a unified language. It's implemented at high level. And then you just translate your code to any of these other possible quantum languages. So it uses these other devices and simulators and hardware, etc., as backends that are codified inside of Tequila API. So you don't have to know how to program, how is the syntax, etc., of these particular languages. Tequila will translate everything from you. So in the end, the idea of Tequila is having some a general platform uh, that unifies the languages and also it can be used for benchmarking purposes, for instance, to compare the results of, of two quantum computers. So the only thing that you will change is run this code in this particular backend or run this other code in this other particular backend. And on top of that, uh, for many applications of near-term quantum computation, for instance, chemistry, you will need libraries that are widely used in quantum chemistry. And these libraries should also be included in your quantum language. So Tequila also includes this kind of backends, this kind of quantum chemistry backends. So that's why it's also useful to run even classical simulation of molecules. And we are working on including more and more backends. So the idea of Tequila is just providing the big framework of unify a language and then introducing more and more backends uh, from different languages, libraries, etc., that can help the acceleration of quantum uh, algorithms. Yeah, I think like the overarching goal of like unifying, you know, these different backend and libraries was really um, appealing, I suppose, to, to a lot of the quantum researchers. I suppose that's probably like a lot of like challenges in terms of like how to stitch all these things together. 
Um, just out of curiosity, what, what are some of the major challenges uh, within your group in creating this package in, in terms of the actual coding and uh, API design and, you know, you know, system collaboration, things like that, yeah. So first of all, the, the very best uh, first challenge was to unify and decide how to uh, organize this uh, big library, let's say. So how to, to define the objective function, how to define the different backends, how to define everything. But now everything is programmed and everything is, the skeleton is there. So now what we need is collaborators in the end, people that are willing to add their own backends to the Kila. So it's, it can be implemented easily if you're familiar with with the backend in the end. So that's the challenge in the end for someone like me is that I need to learn first the backend to know how to implement that in Tequila. But once it's done, nobody else will have to learn that. So that's why Tequila is also, of course, is an open source uh, language. It's developed in University of Toronto, so it's from academia. And we have a GitHub repository that everybody can check and can contribute. So what we need is basically people that wants to experience with them, telling us the issues, etc., because probably there are some bugs. And so we, we are fixing them on the, on the fly, but uh, the skeleton is there and is uh, already used in our algorithms. For instance, the MetaBiqui has been uh, programmed using Tequila and we are working in many other projects that are also using Tequila and, and that's the idea of everything. So the challenge I would say is just to implement more and more backends basically because the skeleton is already done. I see. Do you have a calling for people who are interested in contributing? Uh, to exactly, we are happy to hear from everyone and please check our GitHub repository, which is Tequila. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are some tutorials, of course. So, so yeah. So the idea is also to spread the word in the end and people around the world can just learn quantum computing using this package or using others because there are lots of resources around. But in the end, the idea of Tequila was the unification and benchmarking of different quantum algorithms in different computers and in different simulators. Fabulous. Yeah, be sure to... Uh include the link to the GitHub page of particular to the show notes. So, you know, listeners can, can have a chance to check it out and, and um, reach out to Abba if they're interested in contributing. You recently gave a talk about quantum computing in the noisy intermediate scale quantum era, where at the end you sort of presented some of the current needs, as well as a quantum calling for new algorithms, new application, new architectures, new quantum classical interface, etc. Can you provide summaries of these points? Yeah, in the end, this quantum computing field is not new because it originated many years ago, but now the expansion is very new. And there are many, many challenges to attack. One, uh, some are uh, theoretical, others are experimental. And because of that, we need people from different backgrounds. So from the experimental side, for instance, we don't even know what is the technology that to build these quantum computers because there are different available technologies. Some of them, there are always pros and cons and in all of them. So we need engineers, we need physicists, we need the people expert in materials, in etc., to build these devices precisely. And this from the experimental side, and of course, we need to uh, also algorithms and also people that are familiar with the experiment to implement the quantum control or of quantum gates. Uh, On the other side, we also need people to develop algorithms. And these are from quantum computing scientists that can be physicists or mathematicians or, or et cetera, but also people that work in other fields, for instance, chemists or people that work in finance or people that work in mathematics or in biology. Because in the end, we need to know what are the current challenges in other uh, fields, try to find the quantum algorithm that solves them. So that's why we need also all this input from other uh, fields. 
And finally, also from the software point of view, we need to program these quantum computers and we need a good interface between classical and our quantum computer. We need quantum languages for that and we need also good quantum simulators to benchmark our experiment before running it in a real computer. And because of that, the software engineers are more than welcome to this field. So in the end, there is a space for everyone because we are developing a new tool. So because of that, everybody that has an idea, everybody that has a problem to be solved, is more than welcome in this field to work together towards a quantum solution of it. I suppose, what is your prediction for the field within the next two or three years? More and more people will be around. The expansion will continue for sure. And I believe in two, three years, we will have uh, finally a real-world application of a quantum computer. I'm quite sure of that. Maybe it's a very small one, a very humble one, but still we will have the first real-world applications of at least a small calculus that a quantum computer shows uh, that is more powerful in some fields than the classical one. And because of that, more and more people will come. And maybe, hopefully, we have more clear some of the experimental solutions, like which is the technology that works better than the others, or maybe the mixture of more than ones. But two, three years, maybe it's too low for that goal, and we will need more. So we will see. So everything is possible, to be honest. I see. From your own personal part of view, do you think you're going to you know, stay in academia and working on research for a long time, or do you think you're going to... I don't know, like join industry and become like a research scientist in the field. What do you think the pathway that allows you to make the highest impact to the field? So at the moment, it's not clear to me because all the people that move to private sector, some of them are still working in research. So it's basically doing the same job, but in an industry. So that's at, at least at the moment. So since we still need to study and to develop uh, all the technology yet, of course, there are many people working in applications, but there are also many people in industry working on the fundamental questions of it. And from my point of view, I'm interested uh, mostly in the fundamental questions. And that's why in this case, in this sense, there is not much difference between staying in academia and moving to companies. I mean, there are some of them, but if you negotiate this kind of, of works in the end, I think that you, have, you can find opportunity both in industry and academia to develop fundamental work, let's say. So it's not clear to me at the moment. I want to continue doing research. That's the only thing that I know. And I want to continue working in fundamental questions. So that's uh, my only constraints, to be honest. Got it. So finally, besides academic research, you've also been very active in education and public outreach activities about science, especially in Catalonia. So how, how did this experience contribute to your mission of encouraging scientific vocation for young minds in your community? From one side, I consider that part of my job as a scientist. So part of my job, of course, is developing science and developing applications, etc. But also part of my job, I believe, is to educate the new generations of, of scientists. And a good way to do that, doing these rich activities, teaching, etc. So there are many ways to do this. And I really enjoy it. So, so that's, a, that's a good thing. And on the other side, I also feel that I have the responsible to do it because I'm part of a minority, which is women in STEAM. There is still a gap, as in other fields, in quantum computing, but in science in general, all people of color, uh, women, and other minorities. I also consider a part of my, not only my job, but also my duty to prove to the new generations that, in my case, women are welcome and we can do the job as, as good as anyone else, of course, and it doesn't matter your origin, your race, or your gender, 
or sexual orientation, etc. So I, I believe that we are, I'm, I'm part of the new generation of people in quantum computing in this case, and we have the responsibility to, to prepare this field for the new generation. So that's why I also enjoy to doing all these outreach activities and education for scientific purposes, but also for ethics and for uh, encouraging the diversity and all this stuff. And of course, you learn a lot doing these things, or at least I learn a lot. So when you have to sit and explain something as complicated as quantum mechanics to someone that has no experience at all in, in mathematics even, uh, or, in this, uh, or in physics, uh, you need to really think about it more carefully and go into the point. And that's really hard. It's more harder than one should, uh, one can expect. So I really enjoy doing this effort and this exercise because I learn a lot about physics behind it. Yeah, I think that tied back very well to, I guess, one of the first answer, like you mentioned, you have a lot of role models in high school and university who uh, introduce you to feel. And I think like now you are playing the part of giving back and educating those younger generation to uh, pursue their scientific interests, right? Also, I'm just curious, like in, Barcelona specifically, you know, how would you describe sort of the uh, educational and scientific community within your region? There are several initiatives, in particular in Barcelona for, or in Catalonia and also in Spain. For instance, I remember some of them in Science Museum in Barcelona. They organized some researchers' night. So you go there and talk about your research to everybody that, want, that wants to come. And there are other uh, initiatives like uh, Women in STEAM organized in all Spain. So you go to some high school and talk about science in general. And there are other initiatives like also the Day of Science and these kind of things that you also go to high schools and to schools to, to talk about uh, any topic in science. So sometimes I talk about uh, quantum computing or I try to, but sometimes I talk about more fundamental things like physics in general or what is the light or, or why we see the colors and these kind of things. Because anything that approaches science to people, it's a first step to encourage these new minds to work in any field in science. Thanks a lot, Abba. And uh, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment. Okay. Which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can give the answers for the listeners. Okay. Number one, name three people in the quantum computing universe whose work you admire. That's a, a very difficult question because I admire many people for many reasons. But I, I'm thinking about it and I will say Erwin Tang. She's a researcher in University of Washington and she showed that we can use quantum computing algorithms to improve the classical ones. So these are called the quantum-inspired algorithms. So they are classical, but they come from the quantum computing point of view. And that's really, really interesting in our field. And I believe it's one of the most important topics in quantum computing in the next years. The other two are my former supervisor and my current supervisor, of course, because I'm doing quantum computing because of them. Uh, my current supervisor is Alana Spuruguzic, and he was one of the first ones that showed that uh, we can use current quantum computers in nowadays in, in near-term applications, for instance, chemistry. And the other one is Jose Ignacio Latorre, which was my former PhD supervisor, because in the end, he inspired me to work in quantum computing. And he develops uh, very creative uh, quantum algorithms in almost all possible fields in physics. So... These are the third, the third ones that I can say, but I have many people that I admire in this field, fortunately. Number two, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better scientific mindset. I have several books, depending on which level of, 
of detail uh, are the people interested in. So for instance, if you are interested in quantum computing, and but you still have some, uh, some basics about mathematics, I will recommend quantum computation and quantum information from Nielsen and Schwank. This is the Bible in our field, basically. If you're interested in particle physics and in quantum field theory, but you are also a physicist, we would recommend quantum field theory and the standard model from Swartz. And then for simply scientific um, inspiration, I would recommend two books of uh, scientific philosophy, which is The Structure of Scientific Revolutions from Kuhn and Against Method from uh, Feyerabend. These two books are really inspired me about how to understand science. And finally, for people interested in quantum computing from a computer science point of view, and also without having much knowledge about uh, quantum physics, I would say quantum computing since Democritus from uh, Scott Aronson. Well, thank you for that uh, extensive list of recommendation. I'll be sure to include that over the show notes so they can check it out. Finally, imagine that you could send out a tweet to all the aspiring quantum researchers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Okay, Twitter is 240 characters, so I will try to summarize it with, we are privileged to witness and develop new technology. Scientific history is watching us. We have the responsibility to create and maintain an inclusive, creative, and ethical field for ours and the next generations. And let me finish with a short phrase from one of the most famous uh, Catalan poets, which is Miquel Martipol, which is, come on, for we have yet to start and everything is possible the most famous poems from him and it's very inspiring yeah certainly and that's a very um, optimistic way to to end our conversation so yeah i appreciate you spending your time with me on the podcast today and talking about your foray into the field physics your education at the university of barcelona studying from fundamental physics to astrophysics to quantum physics some justine at oxford in madrid uh, your research on entanglement and spin chains and later on coming to Toronto, working on quantum ML and variational quantum algorithms, and a lot of other you know, great takeaways in terms of some of the ways this, this field can improve in the upcoming years, prediction and how you know, uh, different professionals can, can come and contribute to the field. And I'll be sure to include all the links to the show notes so people can have a chance to check it out and uh, learn more about you, the broader field of quantum computing in general, if they are interested. Abba, I appreciate you spending your time with me today and hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much for inviting me and happy to answer any questions. So thanks for organizing these things. James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.